Thank you so much, Kate, Andrew, and Enoch for being with us. Um, and you know, I think this mentioning of access to the gospel, I was kind of like almost like getting emotional. You know how much of a privilege it is to open our Bibles and to read his word on Sunday morning. I mean, what a gift that it is that God has given us. And so accordingly, uh, we get to open our Bibles this morning and read from the book of John, chapter 15. Uh, one of the favorite passages here at City Church among the staff, Ryan, myself, and many others. This is one of our favorites. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us or use one of the Bibles in the seat baskets in front of you. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. John 15, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Do pray once again for Andrew and Kate and Enoch and for their ministry in Chad. We pray, Lord, for renewal, for revival, that we, we would hear reports, we would sign up for their newsletters and hear reports of, of people coming to know Christ and churches being planted. And so we pray for that, we plead with you for that. Lord, open our eyes, would your Holy Spirit work as we make our way through this text that we may experience real deep change, Father, on account of your word. We know that it has plenty of power to do that. May nothing about this time this morning be rote. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier I mentioned the past couple of years we've been hyping what we call the City Roots Project a project in which we, that is City Church, have endeavored to buy our whole building and then renovate it in a way that suits the needs of our congregation and then blesses our downtown community. And the goal or the mission of this project, as we state it, is to, quote, cultivate a gospel presence in downtown Gainesville for generations. Thus, the roots part of our City Roots project, by God's grace, we're intending to be here for a while, 
integrated into the soil of our community for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. That's why we're called City Church. But as 2023 was coming to an end, I sensed the Lord reminding me. He said, hey man, it's more formal than that, but you get the point. Hey, Chiver, rootedness is about a lot more than longevity. It's about depth. But is City Church a deep church? And does the City Church family know what being a deep church entails? And then I was like, good questions, God, because God always, as you know, asks very good questions. So here we are at the dawn of a new year, spending two Sundays talking about what it means to be a deep church. Depth that has to do with abiding, which we're talking about today, and then serving, which we'll be talking about next Sunday, and then we'll be back in our series in 1 Corinthians. Depth that does not come about all that naturally in spiritual communities, thus the inertia toward, I would say, shallowness that has in many ways invaded American Christianity, especially in the Southeast. For quite a lot of people, being a Christian is like kind of dipping your toes into the water as the tide crawls up the beach and then telling your friends that you went swimming in the ocean. And if that's the case, we're really missing out because the ocean has so much to offer, so much freedom and refreshment and surfing. Two weeks ago, while my wife and I were walking along the beach near New Smyrna, celebrating our anniversary, we watched a guy go surfing with a prosthetic blade attached to his left leg. And let me tell you, there is this beauty and richness about everything he was doing. Set aside the impressiveness of it all, of course. He was surfing and he was swimming and he was enjoying that ocean as much as the ocean can possibly be enjoyed. Did you know that that kind of depth is possible for followers of Jesus? both individually and as a community. And yet my, my pastoral concern is that some of us might be toe dippers, that we might be missing out on the beauty and the richness that is offered to us in Christ Jesus. So today we're considering an invitation and then a promise directly from the mouth of Jesus, a beckoning, you might say, into the depths for the sake of our joy, for the benefit of others, and for the glory of God. An invitation and then a promise. First, the invitation. John chapter 15 is part of an extended discourse in which Jesus is preparing and equipping his disciples for his very imminent departure. Departure as in his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. So there's some significant emotion here from Jesus, as well as some urgency. At the heart of this farewell discourse lies the truly shocking invitation that Jesus gives his disciples in verse 4. Abide in me, 
and I in you. Christianity is unique in so many ways. And this right here is a doozy, let me tell you. Those of us familiar with the ways of the gods, you know, in Greco-Roman mythology or in various other kinds of pagan religions might expect Jesus to say something like, okay guys, uh, make sure you don't make me look bad out there after I leave and if at any point you do something that displeases me when I'm on high, I will, I will lightning bolt you with one of my lightning bolts. That's what we might expect and indeed that tends to be the posture of the gods and performative, meritorious religions where you're constantly walking on eggshells trying not to tick off your belligerent father. But here we have something entirely different. Here we have the God-man Jesus Christ telling his followers to abide in me. Language you might not be very familiar with unless maybe you watched The Big Lebowski. Abide meaning come enjoy my presence and rest in me, an active rest that entails trusting and obeying, as we'll see later in the text. The God of the universe has his arms like wide, wide open, and he invites us not to simply believe in him intellectually and live in vague proximity to him, but to grow closer and closer to him relationally, that we might really know him and cherish him. And in doing so, we find true rest, and we behold our Savior, and thereby rid ourselves of the horrifying burden of self-reliance and self-focus. Here I'm reminded of a very similar invitation that Jesus gives in Matthew 11:28, really famous, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gods have basically, or at least a lot of other religions, emphasize and even maintain distance with regard to people. You know, I'm up here, you stay over there, and you'd better be on your best behavior. But the God of the Bible says, come to me, abide in me. And not only that, when we abide in him, he abides in us. Referring to this mysterious, supernatural reality in which followers of Jesus are truly united with him. So in some real sense, when the father looks at us, he sees his son. It's incredible. Why does Jesus invite us to abide? And this is really important. Because of who he is abounding in grace and compassion, desiring to give sinful, spiritually dead people life. Thus, the agricultural language that Jesus uses back in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. This imagery was very familiar to Jesus' Jewish audience since their scriptures, what we now know as the Old Testament, employed the same kind of language. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 5, we find God describe 
as a beloved vine dresser who dug for himself a vineyard on a fertile hill. In that passage, the vine in the vineyard is Israel. The Israel, nor anybody else, by the way, did not behave in the way the vine dresser intended. Ultimately, it produced wild grapes instead of good fruit. And that's why Jesus describes himself as the true vine. Unlike the Israelite vine, and of course, unlike all of us, Jesus came to earth and lived perfectly and fruitfully. He fulfilled all of the Father's purposes for his life, culminating in his journey to the cross. And so, by the grace of God, life is available to all people through this true vine. Everybody. God promised the patriarch Abraham that the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, light and life would flow into all the corners of the earth, but his offspring faltered. By and large, they weren't faithful to the Lord. So enter Jesus, the ultimate offspring, who was and is and always will be perfectly faithful and fruitful. Light and life will spread to all the nations because of him, thus fulfilling the Father's promises. Abundant life, by the way, John 10.10, with transformative death. I use the term transformative because when we abide in the true vine, I want you to know that Jesus changes us, particularly what we love. Perhaps you've heard or used the phrase, usually in very critical ways, you know, he or she just isn't a very loving person. Have you heard that before? Or maybe used that? Well, as it turns out, everybody is quite loving. (laughs) We love all kinds of different things and experiences and statuses and, of course, ourselves. In that sense, we are in a very loving social moment. The problem is that we love the wrong things, or perhaps the right people and things, but in the wrong order. We have what you might call, and what others have called, disordered loves, which lies at the very heart of what we call sin. What else is sin if not a love catastrophe? Great name for a band, by the way, Andy Band, Love Catastrophe. What else is sin if not a love catastrophe in which we love and trust ourselves more than we love and trust God. That's the nature of sin. So as Jesus changes us as we abide in him, he reorders our loves, him increasingly becoming our chief love, which catalyzes fruitful, obedient living, in which we're inclined to trust him, and live in the way that he says we should live for the sake of our flourishing on this earth and the good of our neighbors and the glory of God, any and all kind of spiritual fruit we can think of, evangelistic fruit, behavior characterized by the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. We could go on and on. Thus the rest of verse 4 through verse 5. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Performative religions and even godless secularism are about achieving the right things in order to find rest. You follow the religious rules or you attain the right educational, vocational, socioeconomic, or relational status, or you discern and appropriately signal your true identity, and then you can be at rest, however that rest is defined. But with Jesus, we abide in him, and then that abiding fuels and equips us for obedience. He welcomes us, and then he forms us. And sometimes he even disciplines us, not punitively, but for the sake of growing us in a way that's not possible without the pruning that Jesus talks about in verse 2. And some might object to what I just said on account of verse 10, which is indeed a bit puzzling in light of what we've been talking about because it's conditional. You know, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. But Jesus' parental language helps us understand what's going on. Parents love their kids because they just do. There aren't any kind of moral or, or behavioral conditions. The kids cannot earn their parents' love through good behaviors, nor can they lose that love on account of bad behaviors. But there is some relational strain when children disobey. When we disobey our parents, in all likelihood, they still love us very much, but things are a bit off until there's repentance and a course correction, and you can feel it. The same thing is true in close friendships. I'm sure we've all experienced what I'm talking about. We can't expect our relationship with Jesus to be just fine when we disobey him. Yes, he is abundantly gracious. Yes, he still loves us as his children when we wrestle with disobedience, but there there will still be some estrangement. So abiding fuels our trust and our obedience, and then the trusting obedience swings back around and energizes our abiding. There's something of a, a cycle here in the familial relationship language. helps us make sense of this. So how do we abide and experience this transformational death? City Church, we hear... And then we come. And then we keep coming again and again and again. The disciples literally heard the voice of Jesus. Abide with me. Can you imagine? And they heard the rest of the farewell discourse here in John. And they heard the Sermon on the Mount in person in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and so much more. We hear Jesus' words through the pages of the Holy Scriptures words that are illuminated for us by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, whom Jesus sent to his disciples and by extension to us when he departed. So church, do we have occasions to hear? By no means is Christianity this one-shot deal where we hear the gospel one day and we raise our hand and pray a prayer and that's the end of it. We need to hear from Jesus again and again 
and again, not for the sake of being saved again and again and again, but for the sake of the ongoing process of abiding in Him and trusting Him and cherishing Him. Jesus' disciples, think about this, they were already following Him. Jesus even calls them spiritually clean in verse 3, and yet Jesus still invites them to abide in Him, to rest and cherish Him and all of this on account of who He is and what He was about to do. But do we have occasions to hear? Do we have space set aside in our lives to hear from Jesus? And listen, I'm sure there's some temptation to respond rather ambivalently or even cynically to questions like these. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should try to read my Bible more. Maybe I'll be in a Bible study. I'll put that somewhere on my list of resolutions for 2024. And you know, that stuff does make a huge difference. Let me tell you, those who are abiding in Jesus introduce precisely those rhythms into their lives. I'm just saying, there's no secret sauce. I want to tell you what I'm really fired up about heading into, new, into this new year, into 2024. Two things in particular related to hearing from Jesus. Number one, I'm really fired up about Scripture memory. Memorizing chunks of God's Word that they might make their way organically into our hearts and minds as a part of the liturgy of our everyday lives. Imagine what could happen. Think about this. If every believer in our city decided to prioritize memorizing a different segment of Scripture every week, that might catalyze a bona fide revival in Gainesville. Second thing I'm fired up about, pastoring one another with gospel promises. The author and the evangelist, Glenn Scrivener, who, by the way, recently wrote, I mean, an incredible book called The Air We Breathe, Buy It Today. Author and evangelist Glenn Scrivener, listen to how he talks about pastoring and evangelism. I think this is really helpful. He says, evangelism is pastoring the lost, in other words, those who are not followers of Jesus. And then check this out. Pastoring is evangelizing Christians. Pastoring is evangelizing Christians. And do you see what this second part is getting at? At all times, followers of Jesus need to be pastored via evangelistic reminders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins, and in doing so, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Yes, of course, vocational pastors have a role to play with that. That's why I'm up here. That's why I'm waving my arms around and all of this business. But we, the priesthood of believers, are also called to pastor one another. That is, we're called to evangelize one another with gospel promises, reminders again and again and again, Maybe the same passages that we've memorized that same week. When was the last time you looked another believer in the eyes and said, Christ died for your sins? 
Some of this will happen in corporate worship and in community groups, but do you see that we also have this opportunity beyond all of these formal rhythms to pastor each other throughout the week with texts and with phone calls and spontaneously having people over for dinner so that you can pray with them. Let's not be shy. Every follower of Jesus needs this regularly. You need it. I need it. Everybody in this room needs it. That is, if we want to abide in Christ and be deep Christians who are corporately part of a deep church. So we hear and then we come. That is, we respond again and again and again. Part of this responding is coming unto Jesus through prayer. See verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What an amazing consideration that is. When we abide in Christ, Jesus changes our affections in such a way that they become more and more aligned with God's heart and will, and then we pray more in alignment with his heart and will, and then God responds accordingly. It's incredible. Part of this responding and coming unto Jesus is through the sacraments in which we participate first in the blessing of baptism and then in the ongoing blessing of communion, the Lord's Supper. And part of this responding is through obeying God's commandments. We already discussed this, including all activities involved in loving God and, and loving our neighbors. We'll get into that a little bit more next week when we talk about serving and servant leadership. Listen, I know there are plenty of people out there, including some in this room for sure, who are really cynical about the church, who are really, really cynical about pastors like me, who are really cynical about followers of Jesus. But what I am saying to you as we begin 2024, please, 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 whatever you do, do not become cynical about Jesus. He's everything. And he is a fountain of life. And Jesus invites us to commune with him all day, every day. It's a get to, not a have to. Which brings us, and this is actually really brief as we close. I should have warned you earlier. Brings us very briefly to the promise I mentioned earlier. And, and incidentally, it will bring us back to the surfer as well. So first the invitation, now second the promise. And we're specifically looking at the promise in verse 11. Listen, Jesus is saying, these things I have spoken to you, not only immediately in the prior ten verses, but elsewhere in this farewell discourse. These things I have spoken to you, check this out, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus invites us to abide in him because he cares about our joy. And when we abide in him, we get, as Jesus puts it, the fullness of my joy. And that my is really important because we're talking about Christian joy that comes from Jesus <laughs> and looks a whole lot more like deep contentment rather than smiley bliss. Followers of Jesus can be genuinely joyful even in seasons of significant pain and grieving, 
even when global circumstances feel awfully precarious, and even in election years when a lot of people seem to be experiencing this mixture of foreboding and exhaustion and anxiety. In Christ, 2024 doesn't automatically have to be a joyless bummer, even if things go really haywire, where our people don't win, or whatever. And conversely, there's no true joy, Jesus says, without abiding and bearing fruit in keeping with true connection to the vine that is Jesus, a reality that becomes permanent for those who reject Christ. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he that is the Father takes away. Or verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And that's clear evidence, by the way, for this in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of God differentiation that we will be pressing into rather intensely two Sundays from now when we resume our 1 Corinthians series. If you haven't looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 closely in recent years, I would encourage you to do so leading up to that. So here's a question as we close. This year in 2024, will we make our way to the water? And will we not just start dip our toes into it, but I mean like throw ourselves in. And it's a get-to. It's an invitation. Two things occurred to me, and I think my wife as well, although I don't want to put words in her mouth, as we watched this surfer in New Suburna Beach. Number one, uh, he had to go through a lot to get out to the water, a lot more than most surfers do. He had to take off. He had like a, a, some sort of prosthetic on his left leg. He had to take that off, and then he, he had to swap it with the blade, and then that took some time, and then he had to kind of walk around and do a whole bunch of things with his equipment, and he was hanging some things on the lifeguard uh, kind of caboose. Uh, what do you call that? Stall that was sitting out there. Not a caboose. It's definitely not caboose. Um, <laughs> lifeguard stand that was out there, so he hung all of his stuff. I mean, he was going through three times as much work as everybody else was going to go surfing. And here's the other thing that struck me. As he made his way to the beach, down the beach and into the water, even though he had this blade on his leg and he was really, really good at using it, there was still a very significant limp. He was limping, so everyone was like, like sprinting out there. He was slowly limping his way down to the water. Followers of Jesus, I want you to understand that this abiding that we're talking about, it is not easy. As we've talked about before, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to energy and effort. Dallas Willard talks about it like that. It's not easy. It's costly. It's hard sometimes. And here's the other thing. This abiding, you will do it with a limp. Everybody, every follower of Jesus is walking around, if they're being honest with you, with a limp. They're not doing so great. And yet, you still have this invitation from Jesus to make your way into the water. And when you get there, and as you enjoy him, Jesus will minister to you in ways that will blow your mind this coming year. So I hope that you will limp your way down the beach and into the water here in 2024. Amen.